All over the South, for most of the 20th century, African-Americans left and went north, seeking what people typically seek when they leave home for somewhere else, a better life. But what happens when leaving makes you appreciate and long for what you've left behind? I mean, it was, it was miserable. It's just thought that came to me, man. I left paradise. Go to hell. <laughs> yeah. You're listening to Gravy. 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 Stories about the changing American South through the foods we eat. We're a production of the Southern Foodways Alliance. I'm Tina Antolini. And today, the reverse migration of one Mississippi farmer. Producer Eve Abrams brings us the story of one man who left the South for opportunity, only to find a new vantage on what he'd had back home. If he was so inspired to leave, what could have made him return? Here's Eve. Donnie Penn Travis is 63. Everybody calls him Penn. He's a big teddy bear of a guy. The bib of Penn's denim overalls stretch over his stomach. His beard and gray hair, what you can see of it underneath his baseball cap, are going gray. Penn points to what's coming out of the ground. The first row there, we got kale. And it's like he's talking about friends. And we got that blue lake kale down there on the end. The man has a relationship with his vegetables and the soil they're born in. My favorite part of this is, is planting, getting my ground ready. I like that. My brother asked me, why you you go over that ground so many times? I like for it to be fluffy and soft. And, and if a seed hit it, it's moisturized and ready to come on up. Penn's daddy was a farmer and raised hogs, which is how he got his nickname. Penn lives in Petal, Mississippi, which is outside of Hattiesburg, plopped along a winding country road, which goes up and down small hills, alongside fields, alternating with thickets of trees. It's where Penn's lived for most of his life. Past his green rows, past his goats and his horse, and across a narrow street, a few people sit talking on chairs set up under a tree. All of them are Penn's relatives. Hmm. I'm related to all the houses that are here. From the, when you top that hill and come to the first house, I'm related to every house that you see from here to the next road. To your left, kinfolk. To your right, kinfolk. To your top the other hill, to you go into another county. It's a, it's a big, big, big family. When Penn was growing up in Petal in the 50s and 60s, a lot of those relatives were farming their own land. My daddy was a farmer, Uncle Rivers was a farmer. It was, so, it was a lot of farmers out here. And the big moneymaker was cotton. My daddy was cotton grower, too. He was, a, he was a, sort of like a man. He got a green thumb at everything he did. Everything he did, he was good at it. I ain't bragging on him nothing, but he was good at it. Penn's daddy didn't go for the new cotton-picking machines. So in order to harvest their crop, his kids had to reach into the cotton plants, grab and pull by hand. Each plant has three or four points encasing the cotton. And when you grabbed it, says Penn, it was like needles hitting your skin. After one day, you had the sorest fingers in town. But they toughened up as the season got going. For each pound of cotton he picked, Penn earned a penny. One penny. I got up to the average of picking 114 pounds. That's all I could pick. There were people that picked 200 pounds of cotton. It's back breaking, it's finger, it's, it's heat, stress, everything. I mean, it's, it's a slow process of making money. Farming was a family enterprise. Penn had nine brothers and five sisters, and everybody had a job. 
The youngest had to make sure the animals got fed and the cows milked. They always needed firewood, which the kids collected in the woods. Pine knots and petrified wood were the best. Then there was breaking up the ground, hoeing, which took from morning until dark. For years before they got a tractor, they plowed with a mule. Penn's older brother, Willie, was really good at handling it. It was sort of like togetherness, you know what I'm saying? We was a close family. Over the years, after we stopped handling cotton like we did, and everybody stray off and get a, a job, a commercial job and stuff like that. That's when we started getting apart from each other. See, when Penn's family was farming cotton, everyone had to help. But the job of farming cotton had been changing for a while. Mechanized cotton pickers, introduced after World War II, meant there was less need for human cotton pickers. And then, in the late 60s, too much cotton led to a drop in prices. So the federal government tried to limit cotton production in order to drive up demand and price. Small farmers, like those in Penn's family, had a hard time making a living. There was a lot of them that left and went up north. Like Uncle River's kids left, Uncle Loemi, his kids left and went north. Uncle Lonnie's kids left and went north. My brothers and them started leaving going north. And the only thing I could see was wasn't no money being made off the farm. It was a living. You could live. It was just like you weren't starving, but you didn't have that financial stuff in your pocket. Between World War I and the 1970s, around six million black Americans left the American South for the urban North and West. Their migration generally followed along train lines, and so people from the East Coast, the Carolinas, Georgia, Florida, mostly ended up in northeastern cities like Philadelphia, New York, and Rochester. Those fleeing Texas, Louisiana, and Arkansas tended to head west for California. And those from Alabama, Tennessee, and Mississippi, like Penn's family, ended up in the northern cities of the Midwest, like Indianapolis, Milwaukee, and Chicago. One of Penn's older brothers migrated to Los Angeles. Others went to Kansas City and Indiana. But most of Penn's brothers followed uncles and cousins to Joliet, Illinois. These relatives helped his brothers find jobs, working for Caterpillar and Ford Motor Company. When Penn was 20, he decided to follow his brothers north. Because I kept seeing my brothers and neighbors and stuff come back to the country. They were driving new cars and fancy stuff. And here I'm walking around here in my overalls and boots and old regular truck going hard to go. When I left here, I was making $2.50 an hour. Two fifty. I was good. If I brought eighty dollars home a week, I was a bad man. <laughs> that was a hard decision, though. I ain't gonna lie to you. Penn's brother kind of convinced him to move up north. He told Penn how much money he could make working with him at John's Manville, making insulation for houses. And his timing was good. Penn was trying to get a loan to farm a new pasture from the Federal Department of Agriculture. Was a white guy told me about. They give loans out for stuff like that. But when I went out there to try to get the loan, they told me I was I was making too much money. <laughs> See, I was making a nickel too much. And I'm going, what? He never took my application to the back to go over it. Right there at the desk where I came in, 
That's where he went through that. So what was the real reason? I was black, trying to do something. Yeah. I hate to say it, though. You live in the prejudiced part of the country. There was widespread discrimination against black farmers from a number of agencies within the Department of Agriculture across the South. So growing up in Mississippi, this wasn't Penn's first brush with racism, not by a long shot. But as a young man, it felt like he couldn't build a future in Mississippi. So Penn eventually followed his brothers to Joliet, Illinois. It's about an hour southwest of Chicago. Penn spent his 21st birthday there. I was gone. I went to the city. I stayed there three years. That was a miserable time of my life. It was miserable. Snow, cold weather, and everything was inside. I'm not an inside person. Everything was inside. Penn stayed with a cousin until he got his own apartment, and he ended up working for Amex Aluminum Company. He was a vat man who cooked down recycled aluminum like cans. He said it was good money, more than he'd ever made in his life. But when Penn talks about the winters he spent up north, even now, some four decades later, it's like he cannot believe how cold it was. One night I got off from work and I walked the parking lot about an hour to find my car because it was full of snow. And when I did find it, it wasn't crank. <laughs> I mean, it was, it was miserable. It was just miserable. And it's just thought that came to me, man. I left paradise. Go to hell. <laughs> yeah. Penn also discovered that some of the problems in the South, the racism, it was up north, too. It was just more hidden. In Penn's first year in Illinois, he didn't see any prejudice. Whites, blacks, and Mexicans all lived together in the same circle in Joliet. But when he got to know the area, he started venturing off by himself. And I went to a place in Illinois called Rockdale. It was across the river. And I thought I went back down south. They were more pre- Oh, Lord, have mercy. I couldn't believe it. I said, no. On one side of the place, it was lovely dovey. And on the other side of the river, it was pure hell over there for blacks. But you know, when I came back south, though, if you were prejudiced, it wasn't like they hid it. You know. But up there. Up there, people acted one way in the day, says Penn, and another way at night. In the south, he knew what he was dealing with. It's my home. This is where I was raised. This is where I love. And I, I have dealt with peoples, white peoples all my life. I have been whooped by brooms. I have been run out of places. I've been called so many names that it didn't bother me no more. And in Mississippi, Penn could farm. That was it, he decided. He didn't want to spend one more freezing winter up in the crowded north where he could hear his neighbors through his apartment walls. He packed his bags and reversed his journey. Coming up, what happens when Penn returns to Mississippi and to farming? What does it mean to go back to the place you'd long to escape? That's ahead. There is that sponsorship music, and today I want to talk about a company that is building communities across the South, not just through physical spaces, but through the sharing of stories. Crescent Communities isn't your typical developer. They embrace this as a motto. By looking to our past, we find inspiration for the future. 
They've sponsored the Southern Foodways Alliance to make films that do just that. Films like this one, which just won an award at the Nashville Film Festival for its director, 1504 Pictures. It's about Muddy Pond Sorghum in Monterey, Tennessee, and the Mennonite family that makes it. There are other people that make sorghum, and I'm not going to criticize anybody's sorghum. I think all sorghum is good. It's just like sex. It's all good, some is just better than other. Let me tell you, this short film is full of gems like that. You can learn more about the company that made it possible at crescentcommunities.com. And now, back to Eve Abrams and Donnie Penn Travis. Penn moved back to Mississippi in 1975. His grandmother had passed away by then, and so Penn moved into her house, the place his family called the Old Homestead House. He lived there with an uncle. Penn had savings from his time up in Joliet, though he wasn't wealthy. He applied for farm loans again, and again, he didn't get them. So he started working in the produce department of a grocery store and farming with his dad. As a kid, when Penn farmed for his dad, he resented it. But when he returned to farm with his dad, it was on his own terms. I love it. I love it. Yeah. Me and farmers just get along. You know, this is my peace of mind. Talk to my God out here. I talk to myself, but I don't answer myself. <laughs> but I get a peace of mind, though. Penn never married. He and his mom raised two of his sister's children after she was killed in a car wreck. But he doesn't have any kids of his own. So this sexagenarian farms 16-odd acres, mostly by himself. When her health is good, one of his sisters lends her hands. His 58-year-old brother, whom Penn refers to as a young man, also helps. In this area, all the old heads had passed on and left. and There wasn't that many left no more. There was 33 farmers here. Now you... I think it's about eight black, eight black farmers in this in this county. And I'm looking at one. Mm-hmm. I think it's about eight. When we're out in his field, one of Penn's brothers pokes his head around the hoop house where we're standing. Hello. Hello. All right. That's my brother from, that's Willie. Oh, hey. All right. Nice to meet you. Willie Travis? Willie Travis. I'm Eve Abrams. Yeah. Nice Glad to meet you. you. Yeah. And where are you visiting from? Uh, Joliet. Up around Chicago there. Where he used to live a million yep. years ago. Years ago, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he was up there. Willie is one of Penn's older brothers, the one who was the expert mule handler. He still lives in Joliet, but he says he's dying to move back to Mississippi so he can spend more time with his family and enjoy the warmer weather. Willie says he's just waiting on his wife, who's waiting for their grandkids to graduate from college. Penn and Willie have plans for Willie helping Penn farm when he moves back, but Penn says he's not holding his breath. Willie has so many grandkids and great-grandkids up in Illinois, and if he was going to move, Penn says, he'd have done it already. I asked Willie if his kids ever thought about farming. No, them them (laughs) girls, they want to be doctors and work on computers and stuff. And them boys I got, you know, they... They don't care too much because they don't like to get the nails dirty and stuff like that. The, the boys don't want to get their nails dirty. Ooh, they worse than girls. I wish they had came up down here where Pia could have put them in this field out like here. I, I really do. Mm-hmm. They'd have been better off, you know. Yep. Yep. So much has changed about farming in the last half century since Penn was a kid. 
When the U.S. Department of Agriculture did its last farming census three years ago, the average age of farm operators was 58. And the number of beginning farmers, ones who'd been farming less than a decade, was down 20%. Melvin Jones is 29, and he's been farming on his own for six years. His farm is near Penn's. In fact, when Melvin was a kid, Penn sometimes helped Melvin's mom plant her garden. These days, the two farmers have a little rivalry going. Here's Melvin. I have some tomatoes in the greenhouse. I'm trying to catch up with Penn. Kind of in competition, we kind of compete, see who can have the stuff first. Who usually wins? Sometimes, I got him the first year on corn because we didn't have any cold weather and I planted February 15th and I was the first one with corn, sweet corn at the market. And by the time I sold out, his corn was coming in. Melvin's tall and lean and like Penn wears a baseball cap. I think he's pretty handsome. He grew up around farmers, including his uncle, who taught Melvin to plant. To make it interesting, his uncle let him drive the tractor. That was something you could go back to school and tell the kids, man, I got to drive a tractor. Can you drive one? And it kind of put me in. I didn't just stop one day and say, mm, I think I'm going to be a farmer. It just kind of, everything kept getting better and better. Can't stay away from it now. Melvin's a full-time farmer and also the part-time manager of the Indian Springs Farmers Cooperative, which is where I talked to him, outside the walk-in cooler of their packing facility, which all the farmers call the shed. Penn remembers when it got started right near his farm, in the church, back in the late 70s. This was just a few years after Penn returned to Mississippi, and it made a huge difference. Before Penn left, farming was virtually impossible financially, but with the co-op, things started changing for black farmers. At first it didn't seem like it was going to be nothing. But after we got a co-op and we built our shed and stuff, and we could start to get enough farmers together for we can ship truckloads of stuff. To New Orleans and Memphis, places too far for a single farmer to drive. But as part of a co-op, all these small independent farmers, most of them African-American, had access to bigger markets and customers who didn't discriminate based on skin color. All they want to know is you got the stuff to sell. You got good stuff, you sold. And so that, that started things really open up for a black farmer down here. Take watermelons. After the co-op started, back when Penn's dad was still living and they were farming together, they'd plant eight or nine acres with nothing but watermelons. All we had to do was take them to the shed and then load them up. Big load of watermelons. They're hauling them to Memphis. Four or five days later, get a check. The co-op is the glue that holds farmers in this area together especially in recent years, as more and more farmland is converted into houses. Melvin and Penn both lament how the landscape is changing right in front of their eyes, becoming more like the city Penn left behind. Because Penn has no kids, I asked if he worries what will become of his fields after he isn't there to farm them. All the time, all I can see is concrete. That's all I can see. It started with concrete coming in. That field up there, concrete is just slowly, slowly coming this way. And when I close my eyes, that's it. But with his eyes open, Penn also sees Melvin. 
when he's dropping off beets or rutabagas or sweet peas at the shed, or when he's picking up a sprayer to hook onto his tractor when the bugs get real bad. And Melvin, this young farmer, he sees things a lot like Penn sees them. Like, when I asked Melvin why he's a farmer, he said, I'm just an outside person. Even though he has allergies, Melvin says he's happiest when he can be outside, watching things grow. I like going to the cities and stuff. I like going experience things, but I just wouldn't want to live there. It's too much concrete and asphalt for me. Can't plan anything. It's good for your allergies, but other than that, I like to come home and be able to walk across the yard and get my shoes muddy or step in a puddle or something. There is something powerful in the choices that Penn and Melvin have made, one to come back and one to stay. And these choices reveal something beyond what it means for them as individuals. Many who migrated north didn't find a promised land of equality and economic opportunity. And the New South isn't the same South blacks fled. By the 1970s, more blacks were moving to the South from the North than vice versa. According to the Brookings Institution, the black populations of New York City, Chicago, and Detroit are shrinking, while at the same time, the black populations of Atlanta, Dallas, and Houston are growing. For many, it's city jobs that promise opportunity, but for Penn and Melvin, that opportunity has come in large part from membership in their co-op. In a region in which there's a long history of black people doing manual labor on farms for someone else's benefit, Here they are, doing it for themselves. There are more than 75 other majority black co-ops in the Deep South, and all the work that those farmers do benefits themselves, their families, and their communities. Penn and Melvin aren't bogged down by history. They're just outside people, making things grow, like they've done most of their lives. Eve Abrams is a radio producer based in New Orleans. If you want another narrative approach to the Great Migration, read Isabel Wilkerson's elegant history, The Warmth of Other Suns. It's superb. We'll have a link to it on our website, southernfoodways.org. Also, keep your ears out for a future episode of Gravy in the coming months that dives more deeply into the Department of Agriculture's discrimination against black farmers in the South. We had help from Travis Lux picking music for this episode. It was by Reverend Gary Davis, Jeremy Wallace, T-Model Ford, Rocavaco, Kenny Brown, Blue Dot Sessions, Poddington Bear, and Kevin McLeod. Our theme music is by Mr. Wendell Patrick. Sponsorship music is by Jazar. Coming up, a taste of the next episode of Gravy, but first... So instead of our usual sponsorship message here, we just wanted to share some awesome news with you. Most of you probably have heard of the James Beard Awards, right? The Oscars of the food world? Well, the James Beard Foundation has named Gravy, both this podcast and the Print Quarterly, as their publication of the year. That is amazing news for us, and it's thanks in part to all of the support we've received from members of the Southern Foodways Alliance. So my huge thanks to all of you. You can learn more about the award and see pictures of me and my colleagues Sarah Camp Milam and John T. Edge all fancied up wearing our Beard Award medals. That's on our website, southernfoodways.org. Coming up on the next episode of Gravy, negotiating a Southern Jewish identity. You know, I've told them this is not a New York Jewish homecoming. This is a Natchez Jewish homecoming. And what would you put in a biscuit if you didn't put ham in it? That's next time. 
You're listening to Gravy. I'm Tina Antolini for the Southern Foodways Alliance. And as you go about your daily life, please remember, make cornbread, not war. <laughs>